Welcome to the All Souls Forum. This week's presentation is entitled Promoting Public Safety Through Collaboration and Innovation. It's presented by Melissa Johnson, General Counsel to the Office of the Mayor, Kansas City, Missouri. All right, good day, everybody, and uh, welcome to the Forum at All Souls, coming to you from All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm Joe Robertson, a member of this church and a member of the Forum Committee. In support of this forum, which for 80 years has engaged our community in some of the most uh, compelling and challenging issues of the day. Uh, today we have Melissa Johnson. She's from the mayor's office. She is the where she's the general counsel for the mayor. She is uh, the director of public safety. And, you know, 2023 has been a had been a very hard year for Kansas City and violence. And I know firsthand that, that Melissa Johnson has been working on the front line with so many groups and organizations and individuals that are going neighborhood to neighborhood, even door to door in the work of peace. So, Melissa, welcome to the forum. Well, good morning again, everybody. I'm so happy to be here with you this morning. Um, as Mr. Joe said, and he mentioned that I get the esteemed privilege of working with folks like him and other service providers that really roll up their sleeves and our boots on the ground doing this work every single day. And it's no secret that 2023, the statistics and even just the sad energy that permeated our community was fairly discouraging, actually really discouraging, especially for people that work in this space every single day. But I know something that is important to me, and I assume that it is something that is important to you, and that's hope and faith. And so today, I hope to instill a little bit of hope and faith by highlighting some of the things that the city has been doing in the realm of violence prevention in conjunction with law enforcement and dozens of on-the-ground community partners. So first, I want to talk to you a little bit about a violence intervention program that is called Partners for Peace, and Mr. Joe participates with me on. Partners for Peace is a violence intervention program that was started in August of 2022, so still not even in existence for about two years. And I think sometimes in our community, we make the mistake of trying something and then only giving it a year or barely two years to see if it works, and then abandoning it and jumping ship to the next initiative. And so what I feel the energy shift in our space to be is that we're really ready to bear down and pour into different initiatives for the long term so that we can see some measurable and sustainable results. So Partners for Peace is the first of its kind collaboration between the city, Kansas City Police Department, the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office, and dozens of on-the-ground community organizations that aim to disrupt volatile situations in real time, saving lives. Over the past three years, Partners for Peace has been developed with the assistance of the Department of Justice, as well as thought incubators like the Harvard-Bloomberg Collaboration Track. So essentially what we do is ACPD sends us all victims of non-fatal shootings, families of homicide victims, and even active crime drivers, people that just so happen to show up in six police reports in a three-month span. At minimum, they need better friends, right? Even though that KCPD can't sustain a case against them because there's not enough evidence. Well, what does, we, what does it look like if we use that as an opportunity to intervene be before they become a statistic? If we can get them services that hopefully interrupt the cycle of violence before they unfortunately commit another criminal act. 
And so when KCPD sends us all of these categories of individuals, I then get to sit down with my two client advocates that work with all of the organizations like Community Link, Ad Hoc Group Against Crime, Center for Conflict Resolution, Restart, all of these different organizations that really aim to get to the root causes of crime. And my client advocates, they connect the sources of referrals with those services to hopefully, like I mentioned, interrupt the cycle of violence. And in 2023, again, with just two social workers and myself, we were able to touch 580 high-risk individuals. And these aren't folks that have enough awareness to fill out a job application and submit it to the office. They don't have enough awareness to go online and avail themselves of service opportunities. These are folks that are largely considered as being too difficult to reach, too far gone. And that is exactly what this program is designed to meet. And so that's Partners for Peace. Um, second, I mean, before I move on to the next point, Partners for Peace is also designed to expand the capacity of our police officers. It's no secret that they are understaffed, right? Um, and so what does it look like if they outsource some of their policing responsibilities to community? They shouldn't be expected to solve all of their cases, increase clearance rates, be social workers, speak to every child that they see, hand out turkeys around Thanksgiving and cookies to tell kids at school, right? That's a heavy load. And then we can't be surprised why they can't fully pour themselves into solving their cases quickly and efficiently. So what does it look like if you have community hand out the turkeys and the cookies to kids? You have community reach out to victims of non-fatal shootings so that you can continue to focus on enforcement and let us do the service offerings, which is what a lot of the organizations that I work with have done best over longer than decades. And so it's really, really been a great collaboration to be a part of and to play a part in standing up. Second, I want to talk about the Multidisciplinary Public Safety Task Force. And my apologies, I've been trying to get City Council to change the name because, Lord, it is a mouthful. Um, but this task force was created after the mass shooting that happened on 57th and Prospect in June of last year, where unfortunately three lives were taken and nine people were injured. Well, when something as tragic like that happens, all of the media community looks at one entity for answers. And that entity is the police department. How could you let this happen? How is this even possible? Well, the reality is the police department doesn't issue business licenses. Police department doesn't have the leeway to close a business. Those are city functions. And so after I dug in deeper, I learned that this particular location was licensed as an auto shop. It got its business license to run as an auto shop. Well, it was also being run as an illegally operated after hours nightclub. No liquor license, no fire code inspection, none of the regulatory requirements that most nightclubs have to go to, have to go through. And so I realized that KCPD had called regulated industries at the city over a dozen times about this particular location. But because there was not an active liquor license, regulated industries didn't feel like they could intervene. They couldn't do anything. There wasn't a license for them to revoke. Well, that's not how it should work. If regulated industries couldn't do something, you pick up the phone and call neighborhoods to see if they can. You pick up the phone and call the health department to see if they can. You pick up the phone and call the business licensing office to see if they can do something. And so this task force was created to hopefully eradicate and remove those communication barriers so we could all be on the same page and no longer uh, have the excuse of what well, I didn't know as a city department, what the issues were, and therefore I didn't know how I could intervene. So this task force, this is how it works. 
we utilize risk terrain modeling science. And I'm going to try to distill this as best that I can because I am not the expert in this arena, but I convene the task force. And so risk terrain modeling is basically a science that leads you to look at different environmental factors that contribute to crime. So you stack a bunch of different data points on top of each other. So 911 calls for service on top of 311 complaints. So is there a shooting that happened in the vicinity of a broken streetlight? Or is there a shooting that happened in the vicinity of a vacant house that hasn't been properly boarded up? And where those data points align, we identify that as a risk terrain modeling site because it indicates to us that there's a variety of environmental factors that are contributing to crime. I mean, the vacant house is also being used as a drug house. The lack of lighting on the street can serve as a breeding ground to crime because there's a lot less visibility and people can commit their offenses under the cloak of darkness. And so once we pick our locations by looking at KCPD's risk terrain modeling map, I convene our task force and the, the departments represented on the task force are public works, health department, parks department, regulated industries, EDC, like I mentioned, neighborhoods, our municipal prosecutor, the land bank to really work on the vacancy issue, and even our houseless coordinator on staff at the city, Mr. Josh Hinges, because a lot of our municipal crime issues do stem from quality of life concerns and making sure not only that our houseless community has adequate access to resources, but their lack of access does not result in, um, how do I put it, um, quality of life concerns for the people around them. And we just have to be honest about that. You know, two things can be true at the same time. You can have a huge heart and want to help people and want to treat them like humans and humanely. But at the same time, sometimes they do cause concern for small business owners, for people trying to walk around downtown. There's a lot of mental health issues, substance abuse induced psychosis. A lot of these things that our houseless community go through that can have a negative effect on the community around them. And so we respond to our locations with our task force. We do show up unannounced. It's probably about as close to a sting operation that I'll ever get in my adult life. And we take an inventory of all of the ordinance violations that we see on the premises. Some of the things that we have seen thus far, and this initiative was actually only started in August of last year. So it hasn't even been a year. But some of the things that we have seen are illegal gambling machines, where single serve liquor is being sold, where very inexpensive food food is being sold. And if you add all of those factors together, it's a very enticing environment for some of our houseless community who then results to loitering outside and maybe harassing some of the customers. And so we have really spirited conversations with ownership using the list of ordinance violations that we see as leverage. We pretty much say, hey, listen, we're here to support you and in better investing in the safety of your patrons. But you have to work with us. We will give you a free SEPTED analysis by KCPD. And that's a fancy way of saying having a professional at KCPD survey your premises and give you recommendations on how you can better secure it. We don't just talk to them about ordinance violations. We talk to them about common sense changes they can make as well. A great example is the Shell gas station on 37th and Broadway was one of our locations. Well, it's not illegal to sell ski masks in your in your gas station, but in the middle of summer, is it the brightest and smartest thing to do? 
you have to be honest about the type of energy and behavior that you are attracting by selling some of the merchandise that you have decided to sell. Well, I am very happy to report. I think I made some pretty decent sense. <laughs> the business owner agreed to remove the sale of those ski masks from his store. I mean, and that was not the only thing. If you looked at the front display case right by the register, there was like a Wolverine, if any X-Men fans in, in the room, it was a Wolverine claw with knives protruding from it about this long. Now, he had a license to sell it, but do we really need to be selling those type of weapons in the middle of our city? in conjunction with ski masks. You cannot be surprised <laughs> that in this particular gas station has had a number of shootings, has had a number of fights, has had a number of other offenses that you can't necessarily draw the correlation connection, but it's not helping at minimum. And so this task force banded together, really leveraging all of the power of the city to have these conversations with owners. We've seen some great results already. Um, and we don't just focus on the places. We also have to focus on the people. So after the task force does its work, we follow up with a community canvas, leveraging all of our partners that participate on Partners for Peace, which is over two dozen community organizations to also canvas the neighborhood around the sites that we pick to make sure that we are actually connecting the residents in that area to resources as well. And I'm very, very proud to report that one of the locations that we did last year, probably one of the earlier ones, was the Prospect Corridor between 27th and 35th Street. This is an area I actually grew up in that area and I still live in that area. And my mom loves to tell me that it's had challenges in her generation, in my grandmother's generation, and of course, in my generation. Well, we did our site visit on that corridor in September of last year. I am happy to report for the last two months because it's been continuous engagement. We don't just go out once and then stop. We actually funnel resources into these areas for 90 days. Calls for service in that corridor have been cut in half. I'm very, very proud of that. Now, of course, we are a small but mighty task force. And so covering enough ground to really replicate that success quickly and broadly um, is going to be an uphill battle. And so I'm definitely doing my advocating with my powers that be the mayor and city council to give us more resources so we can double, triple, quadruple that impact. But we've already seen early proof of success. And so really looking forward to continuing that work. Number three, so it's no secret that the municipal jail has been at the center of a lot of public safety conversations recently. And taking off my director of public safety hat, just as an individual, I do believe that we need a municipal jail. Not to throw everybody that is charged with the municipal fence in jail, but again, looking at it as an opportunity to intervene before criminality can escalate. Um, you know, sometimes people start with lower level offenses. And if you don't really use that opportunity to intervene, it can just continue to snowball into unfortunately more violent offenses later in moving forward. 
And so the uh, city council established a special committee on detention and rehabilitation to really take the reins on figuring out how big our jail needs to be, how many mental health beds um, our jail needs. Over 90% of people charged with a jailable municipal offense have some aspect of mental health concerns or diagnosis. So that means that we need a healthy amount of mental health beds in our detention facility to really make sure that we are treating these people with the necessary medical support and emotional support that they need. But to complement that conversation, the city council asked me to co-chair the Alternatives to Incarceration Commission. Understanding that incarceration is not appropriate for every single offense, especially for nonviolent offenders, low-level offenders, offenses that really demonstrate poverty. So, you know, if I'm stealing food from a grocery store because I'm hungry and I'm trying to feed my children, probably not suited. Actually, I'm positive they're not suited for incarceration. But what do we do? You know, I would love to live in an abolitionist state, but unfortunately we are not there yet. So we have to find a delicate balance between holding people accountable, but also make sure, making sure that we connect them with the restorative services and help that they need and that they deserve. So um, our Alternatives to Incarceration Commission, we heard from a healthy swath of public safety experts, programs that have been initiated in other cities, judges from around the region. And we came up with three buckets of recommendations to city council that we actually presented to them this past Tuesday. And so I just want to run through our recommendations and as city council takes these up and um, ultimately votes on them to fund them, I would really call on the community and ask you all for your support if you are as intrigued and excited about the prospects of bringing these type of initiatives to our city as I am. The first one is called a Policing Alternatives and Diversion Program. It's called a PAD program for short. Now, we got the idea to implement this here in Kansas City from Atlanta. Atlanta, Georgia already is utilizing this model and has seen some great success. In fact, every constituent that has participated in this model in Atlanta, 98% have not been arrested within the six months after completion of this program. So clearly it's doing something right. And this is how it works. So you leverage 311. Instead, of, let's say, for example, I'll give you a hypothetical. I'm a business owner in the crossroads and I go to open up my store. There's a houseless man laying right in the vestibule, right in front of my front door. It's freezing cold outside. Well, as things currently stand, the only number you can really call, aside from 988, which is still fairly new and people are learning about, that's the mental health crisis hotline, but people's mind automatically go to 911. Well, being short-staffed with our police officers, frankly, only a very small batch of them being uh, trauma-informed, trained, and really having the toolkit to deal with chronically houseless individual Probably not the right entity to respond, but our current infrastructure only allows for that. So what does it look like if instead you as a business owner or as a resident, if somebody's sleeping on your corner or there's an encampment that has become too big or it's kind of growing out of control or trash is not being disposed of properly, instead of calling 911, call 311. And when you call 311, you'll have one of two options. 
You can either get connected to um, different service providers, kind of like a Salvation Army's 211 hotline so that you can connect the individual to services yourself. Or you can have a mental health professional respond to the location. And if necessary, they ascertain the environment and then they will call KCPD if it's too volatile. But it's a really community for community first response. And so some of the eligible offenses that would work for this PAD program are general disturbances, such as somebody yelling outside of a business or blocking traffic, public indecency, welfare, somebody asking for food or help, so loitering outside of some of our gas stations, um, mental health concerns, of course, substance misuse, public health crises, such as somebody getting food from a dumpster or using a bathroom in a public place, and other kind of offenses that illustrate somebody is trying to meet their basic need. I'm sleeping in the vestibule outside of a business that I don't have any connection to. Chances are I'm just probably trying to get warm and find somewhere to sleep. Is it legal? No, you're trespassing. But are you trying to meet a basic need just to survive? Absolutely. So what does it look like if we have people call 311, get them connected to services, get them placed in housing and things of that nature? Now, of course, nothing is free. <laughs> and there's a pretty penny associated with implementing a program like this. Of course, you have to hire the social workers and the personnel that can actually serve as the first responders to calls like this. And in Atlanta, they also have a crisis center where when the, when the mental health professionals respond, they have some place to bring the people that they have connected with. And so in some it costs about $8.5 million to start a program like this. But when you compare that price tag with the price tag of building a new jail and the continuing price tags of this kind of wheel of incarceration that we have in our community, literally incarcerating people with mental health issues and then letting them back on the street and then we see them again in three months or even three weeks sometimes. Um, the $8.5 million investment, at least to myself and our commission, seems well worth the investment. Second, we proposed a pre-diversion and supervision program, a pre-trial diversion and supervision program. And so pretty much every other major metropolitan city has a program like this. It really aligns with the foundational tenet of criminal law, innocent until proven guilty. If you have been charged and convicted, I mean, if you have been charged, excuse me, of an offense that is nonviolent, that does really get to some of the um, quality of life concerns, you've never heard anybody, do you really need to be incarcerated pending trial? No. It wastes our resources. It does not help you placing you into an incarceral state. And even the needs assessment that city council commissioned for our municipal jail states that implementing this program alone would reduce our capacity need for our jail by 19%. 19% fewer people in jail pending trial. And so what we need to do to implement this is hire a community care coordinator. So a person that works at the municipal court. And once somebody is charged, they sit down with the individual and do an assessment. 
a risk assessment? Do you have adequate community? Are your parents in your life? Do you have a church community that you can lean on? Um, do you have a job that you can return to? Do you have housing? And the more support somebody has, the less risk they pose to the rest of society. And so if you have low risk, there are a few conditions and services that we can offer you to send you back out into the community with little to no concern that you will reoffend. If you're of moderate risk, we need to place some more, some more dire kind of um, services and restrictions on you before we return you to the environment, whether that's electronic monitoring, the uh, ankle bracelets to make sure that we know where you are, making sure that you do a drug test at least once a week or once every two weeks, things of that nature. But we still have enough faith in you based off of the risk assessment that with these conditions, you will not reoffend. Then you have the high risk folks um, that it would be difficult to find a reasonable combination of conditions and services that would make the court feel comfortable to let you back out into society pending trial. Though we should really be reserving our municipal jail beds for those individuals, not the low to moderate risk. And so that is what the pretrial diversion and supervision program, along with hiring the community care coordinator, that's how they would help the overall infrastructure of public safety here in Kansas City. And then lastly, establishing a small business security fund. So everybody's not Walmart, right? With a massive loss prevention office that can withstand these organized shoplifting rings that can withstand property damage from certain municipal offenses. A lot of our small businesses, who in my opinion are the backbone of our economy here in Kansas City, um, they don't have those same resources. You know, if their window gets broken into and they are robbed, the first time you call your insurance company, your premium skyrockets. Well, if that wasn't accounted for in your beginning of year budget, that can be crippling. And God forbid the second time your window is broken into can mean that your coverage is revoked entirely. And then what do you do for this business that you have literally poured your life savings into to start? And so with this small business security fund, it would be a fund of money that small businesses could apply for to increase their investment in public safety, whether it's higher resolution cameras, more sophisticated security systems, reinforced glass, things that will obviously help, but that are also very expensive. A high resolution camera at minimum is about $3,000. And then if you have to buy enough to cover your entire premises, both inside and outside, break up fairly quickly. And so this fund would be available to small businesses that fall under a certain annual revenue cap. Again, this money is not for the Walmarts and the targets of the world. This money would be only accessible by our small businesses that fall under a certain revenue cap. And so that is our alternatives to incarceration commission work. Again, we just presented our findings to city council this past Tuesday, and um, they are set to have their final recommendations done in February. So please stay tuned. And when there is an opportunity um, for you all to submit public comment and support to really advocate for implementing these initiatives that, again, still focus on accountability, but also highlight the importance of care and making sure that we try to reduce people from ever walking back into our municipal courts and our municipal jails. Number four, focused deterrence. 
Does anybody remember Nova from 2014? I know Mr. Joe does. Yes, yes, yes. And so back in 2014, we had this program called the Kansas City No Violence Alliance. And it was based off of an academic theory called focused deterrence. Now, focused deterrence in a nutshell is the methodology to identify those that are most likely to shoot or be shot and inviting them to these big groups called call-ins. And at a call-in, you get to hear from Rosalind Temple of Casey Mothers in Charge. You get to hear from other mothers and family members that have lost loved ones to violent crime. You get to hear from police officers. You get to hear from individuals that have had lived experience but have decided to change their lives. You get to hear from the prosecutor and the mayor and the chief of police, of course. But it's an opportunity in at its foundation to connect you with services and resources to once again, hopefully interrupt the cycle of violence. But if you decide not to engage with that help, then swift and robust enforcement will follow. That's focused deterrence. Identifying the highest risk folks and either connecting them to services or strictly enforcing upon them. Well, for a variety of reasons, that program was disbanded in 2016. And at the height of that program, that is the last time our community has seen less than 100 homicides in a year. So it worked. It did work. Now, there were some concerns that definitely need to be tweaked the second go around. Like, for example, the post-George Floyd, I mean, the George Floyd era really exposed to us how much implicit bias plays into a patrol officer's work. So leaning a lot less on individual patrol officers, opinions on who needs to be invited into these call-ins, and really only using objective resources, looking through police reports, looking through our non-fatal shooting victims list, looking at, you know, for example, juveniles who has been suspended or expelled um, over the last six months. Objective resources, not Officer X saying, Oh, yeah, I know this guy. He's been up to no good for the entire time I've been in East Patrol. Well, we're not going to be relying on that anymore because everybody, myself included, has implicit biases. So let's remove that from the equation and really make it more objective. Also giving the community an opportunity to refer people to this network. The people in my neighborhood, I live in Oak Park neighborhood, so just an earshot away from 35th and Prospect, my neighbors know what's going on in my community well before law enforcement, well before the prosecutor, well before the news knows. What does it look like for community to actually be able to refer people to this infrastructure as well? And so I actually sit on the implementation team with our prosecutor, chief of police, a bunch of different KCPD commanders. We've hired an academic researcher. Um, our health department is participating. And I'm very, very excited. This is kind of breaking news-ish. It's not necessarily all the way out in the public, but the governing board for focused deterrence, which is composed of the mayor, chief of police, prosecutor, DEA, OTF, all of our federal law enforcement partners, and a couple of community members, their first governing board meeting is just in two weeks. And so we are almost ready to relaunch this, which in my opinion is going to be the quickest and most effective way that we reduce violent crime. Of course, most of the things that we handle at the city through our municipal court is not 
they're not shootings. Although we do see, and I'll talk about this in a second when I get to domestic violence, we do see some violent incidents come through our municipal court, but by and large, those are handled at the state level. And it is my opinion that this is going to be the quickest and most efficient way for us to get violent crime under control. Identifying, again, those that are considered too far gone, those that won't engage in services, and really giving them a culturally competent opportunity to do so. You know, um, even though I was raised in Oak Park and I still live there, I've never shot anybody. And so when I get up and say, when I get up and say, stop the violence, put the gun down, resonates bit just because, you know, I am personally affected. I go to sleep to the sound of gunshots regularly, but it will never resonate to the same degree as somebody that has shot somebody that has paid their debt to, to, to society and that has found the wherewithal to change their life. I will never have that much credibility with the demographic that we are trying to reach. And so understanding that, um, unapologetically leaning into that and making sure that we are leveraging community members to actually make inroads with people to get them to these services, because it's my belief we don't have a resource issue in Kansas City and in our community more broadly. We have amazing organizations that have been doing this work day in and day out for decades we have a connection issue. The people that need these resources the most, they don't know about them. I don't know if you saw the um, 17-year-old girl, Amari Hughes, that unfortunately lost her life to domestic violence a couple of months ago out in Grandview. Well, I had the opportunity to sit down with some of Amari's friends, and it was a very, very casual setting. Um, I definitely didn't have on a suit. I wanted them to feel as comfortable and as, you know, relaxed as they could. And of course, I learned that they knew what their friend was going through. The incident that took her life was not the first time she had encountered domestic violence. Um, but her and her friend group, they didn't know about Rosebrooks. They didn't know about Moxa. They didn't know about these organizations that literally could have saved Amari's life. And so we don't have a resource issue. We have a connection issue. And focused deterrence is a very, very streamlined, in-your-face, forward way to connect people that need resources the most to the resources that we have broadly and widely available in our community, thanks to our very, very robust and healthy service provider community that I have the privilege of working with. Um, in February of last year, yes, it was last year, um, City Council invested $30 million into violence prevention and intervention activities over the course of five years. And it made a lot of news, a lot of headways, probably the biggest investment that we have made in this space in quite some time. Um, historically, we have had a history of relying on a federal grant here and there every two to three years, every five years or so to really invest into this space. Well, clearly that is not enough. And we definitely need to make sure that our budgeting aligns with our priorities. And so therefore this $30 million investment came to be. And I just want to let you know what we have spent that money on thus far. And again, this is um, over five years. So it's $6 million a year. So we have um, issued RFPs that are currently in the process of contractual development for strengthening the health of neighborhoods. So really working on neighborhood connectivity. I love to tell people all the time when I tell people where that I where I live, they say, oh, you live in the hood. No, I don't. I have neighbors. I have the best neighbors in the world. They cut my grass. They drop me off fresh herbs. <laughs> 
You're amazing. Um, and so really trying to bring that aspect of neighborhood connectivity back um, into our reality. When you value your neighbor and you respect your neighbor, you're much less, much less likely to commit a crime in the middle of your residential street. Um, supporting families through summer opportunities for youth. Of course, um, if you saw the news about the Crown Center shooting that happened here recently, um, very thankful to learn because, you know, in these type of scenarios, you have to reach for the silver lining. Very happy to learn that they were not as young. The offenders were not as young as originally reported. They were more so in the 19 to 25 range, but that's still considered youth. That's absolutely still considered youth, especially when our primary demographic that commits shootings and that is victimized by a shooting is between the ages of 16 and 25. It's not just under the age of 18. So making sure that we have adequate opportunities in the summer, not only for the kids that are out of school, but violence tends to skyrike and peak in the summer months as well. What do we have for those 18 to 25 year olds as well? And so spending money on that, a youth violence prevention hotline a hotline that is actually staffed by young people because that credibility piece again, right? They use the same lingo. I can't keep up anymore with all of the <laughs> different terms and, and slang that is being used in our community, but our young people can. Let's tap them into this work. Let's leverage them to be able to really make inroads with their peers. Um, Aim for Peace, which is another violence intervention program that we have at the city. It's primarily staffed by people who have been justice involved. And they are, have these neighborhood groups um, that they collaborate with and that they support. They do uh, real-time street interventions and mediations for people that are embroiled in a conflict. I mean, if you see the statistics, most um, of our homicides have been caused just simply by an argument. When you marry unfettered access to a firearm, to an argument between people that have poor conflict resolution skills, Perfect recipe for a homicide in our community. And so Aim for Peace is really working to try to help people resolve their conflicts in a much more peaceful way. But contracts that we have actually already awarded are um, evaluation service for Aim for Peace to make sure that they are making data-informed decisions, a victim and witness relocation program that I actually had the uh, privilege of helping to start. People want to cooperate with law enforcement. They want to clean up their communities. They want to restore peace to their streets. But when we're asking them to testify against somebody that lives three houses down, and that naturally impacts and jeopardizes their personal safety, it's a very hard decision that we as a community ask them to make. Well, what does it look like if we relocate you for a couple of weeks in a hotel or permanently relocate you to another part of our city? Um, and so that is what that program is for. Supporting people reentering into society. Missouri has a recidivism problem. We do not do right and adequately support people that are returning to society after incarceration. And so this program that was awarded to the Kansas City Metropolitan Crime Commission, their second chance program, actually gives stipends to individuals that are returning home from incarceration. Sometimes they come home with no driver's license, no birth certificate, no money, no bus card. And, and we're expecting them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps when they don't have any boots. And so this initiative really gets them some stipends to get them on a rolling start to try to push them towards an avenue of success. And then um, 
asset-based development through youth engagement, another youth program really trying to restore um, our young people. Because, and I know I'm going to say, my sister likes to tell me that I'm turning into my mother and she's probably right. Um, It's just a new brand of young person that is in our community right now. Between social media, reality TV, the glorification of violence in music and movies and TV shows, all of these inputs that we ask them to distill and to weed through, it's a lot. It's 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 a lot. And I can definitely tell that we are dealing with a more hardened, reluctant, and just distant young person, especially a lot of the juveniles that we see come through Partners for Peace. And even some of them that have great families, they have an engaged mother, but the enticing representation of the streets is just sometimes too hard for them to overcome and withstand. I want to seem cool, so I'm going to join a gang. I want to be the big guy on campus, so I'm going to post myself with guns and money on social media. If not, I seem soft. If not, I don't seem like I'm of the culture that I'm trying to prescribe to. So that are some of the intangible things that we're up against. And so youth asset-based development is going to be a really important tool in our toolbox as we continue to do this work. And the last thing before we open it up to questions I want to talk about is domestic violence. Last year, 65% of our homicides had some type of domestic violence component to them. And it's not just your traditional theory of domestic violence, like two people that are in a relationship. We've seen fathers and sons get into arguments that escalate into death. Siblings escalate into death. Um, And then, of course, the intimate partner violence, but even children being at the center of some of these incidents. And a lot of people don't know, but the vast majority of, of standalone domestic violence cases in our city are filed in municipal court. Between January 2022 and August of 2023, six, um, about 95% of the domestic violence cases were filed in municipal court. So this is when I say there are some violent incidents that come through our municipal court. We've seen domestic violence cases that involve strangulation, serious bodily harm. And so we have a lot more work to do for sure, but uh, we are making some strides understanding this reality. Now, Um, Should this be the case that so many domestic violence cases are heard in municipal court? I certainly don't think so. And I know that a lot of our council members don't think so. And there are ongoing conversations with our Jackson County prosecutor to figure out why that is. Um, But until we get there, these are some of the things that we're doing at the municipal court to really try to intervene into domestic violence. so our we have a DV docket that is run by our presiding judge, Judge Courtney Wackel. Um, they provide resources to victims by connecting them to courtroom advocates, trained to help them with a variety of social services. Um, and they have launched two new specialty docket programs, one for youthful offenders, people that have not grown up in environments where they know you don't hit somebody you love. And if you do, that's maybe not necessarily the way you should be loved. A lot of our young people grow up in ecosystems where 
it's still commonly thought or understood, well, he wouldn't hit me if he didn't love me. He wouldn't be territorial or overbearing if he didn't care. Really trying to interrupt that mind frame and that mind cycle to help our young people have healthy and positive opinions and views of romantic relationships and intimacy um, is something that this new specialty docket is really focused on. And then also... Um, a special docket for first-time offenders. Um, people deserve second chances, especially when there has not been a strangulation or serious bodily injury charge uh, uh, caused. And that goes for our domestic violence offenders as well. And so that is what that docket aims to do. And before I open it up to questions, uh, Mr. Joe said that I can briefly mention that I plan on leveraging all of my experience and my participation in these variety of programs, really working to expand their capacity. And on my prior experience, my first job straight out of law school was being a little baby prosecutor at the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office. Um, I announced in September of this past year that I am actually running to become the first ever Jackson County Prosecutor of Color. Um, I believe, thank you very much. I believe that my my understanding and connection not only to this work, but the primary demographic affected by this issue um, is really going to help us shake things up, try some new things, take a much more culturally competent approach to violence reduction and service offerings. But then on the flip side of that, um, I will never portray myself as being unreasonably tough on crime, but I do think that there is a way that we can be tough with empathy. We have to get this issue under control. And until it is understood that if you shoot somebody in Jackson County, you will receive swift and decisive justice. This is just going to continue to multiply out of control. And so really excited at the prospect to continue this work in that capacity. But until then, I've got a lot more work to do in my current capacity. And so, Joe, I don't know if we want to open it up to questions. Yeah, Melissa Johnson, she's the director of public safety. Before we get, we're going to get to the Q&A. And also uh, take a moment here to say next Sunday, we are formed next Sunday, we will be staying in the mayor's office. Uh, mayor Quentin Lucas himself is going to be here. That'll be in Bragg Auditorium in the kind of an annual tradition. The mayor comes and gives a state of the city address. So share that with your friends and neighbors. We have our first question. Hi. Anyway, I, I love the alternatives to incarceration. Um, have you worked at all? There's a, a nonprofit called Reaching Out From Within mm. uh, that works on alternatives to incarceration. They operate in Kansas. And when I was with them, they were on schedule to expand into Missouri. I don't know if you've. I have not had the occasion of connecting with them. If maybe I can connect with you so you can facilitate that connection. That's exactly what we did through this process, listening to other cities, other organizations, other initiatives that have seen success. I mean, we can learn a lot from our neighboring jurisdictions. And so I would love to get connected to them. You uh, referred to those who were too far gone. Mm -hmm. And I would be interested in your opinion uh, of what the root cause is like uh, early family dysfunction, lack of economic opportunity. What are the root causes that, of the, those that are too far gone? Absolutely. Um, that's a great question. Um, and the answer, unfortunately, is fairly sad. Um, it's a lot of the same root causes that have been a reality for decades. 
systemic racism that has resulted into socioeconomic disadvantages, which has resulted in us being able to pay less taxes into public schools in certain parts of our community, which then widens the graduation and education rates, which then snowballs into your earning ability in the workforce development arena. A lot of untreated mental health, um, a lot of poor conflict resolution. If I grow up in an arena where everybody around me solves their problems, Problems through violence. Guess what? When I get of age, I'm going to solve my problems through violence. And so you have your obvious longstanding historical root causes, mental health, substance abuse, lack of um, socioeconomic advantages, food, deserts. Um, I'm a lot more irritable if I'm hungry, if I can't eat, right? And so less likely to be able to solve a conflict positively. Then you have root causes that a lot of people don't see or think of. Like, for example, I'm the only civilian that sits in KCPD shoot review every Wednesday morning, which is a weekly meeting where our local and federal law enforcement partners workshop all of the shootings that happened the week prior. And even for the young people of that demographic up to the age of 25, I realize they don't have a single, a lot of them don't have a single positive influence around them. Their parents, their friends, are all doing the same things. So how can I see a path to change if in my mind there is no path to change? And what are we doing to combat that? We don't have a lot of mentorship programs with people that have been justice involved, like formally funded by the city. And these are pushes. These are pushes that I'm trying to I'm trying to affect at the city right now. Um, we have to think outside the box. And even with workforce development, right, to really t- uh, tackle the earning differences in some of our communities. We can't do it like we did it 10 years ago. You know, with offering construction jobs and CNA opportunities. And that is honest, great work. And it's very lucrative as well. However, if me as a 19-year-old choose between going to a construction site and having to respond by 4 a.m. and I have to take public transportation to get there, even though I'm going to make a decent wage versus being an influencer, Versus being a podcaster versus having a wholesale Amazon business where I can make six figures from my couch in 2024. We don't offer those type of opportunities or even educate our young people that that is possible. And so they they tend to resort back to what they know, going back to the streets. And so um, to answer your question, sir, is root causes that have existed for a long time. But in order to combat that, we have to find solutions that are a bit more creative and in line with our current times. And that is the work that I'm trying to push um, through my current role and hopefully through my next. I'm uh, heading up a small task group mm-hmm. the church that's trying to put together a reasonable security program. Okay. Uh, one of our concerns is the possibility of a violent intruder. Does the city have education programs that will help us put together a a violent intruder coping system? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's not the city, but of course we work closely with KCPD um, and I can leverage whatever influence I have to make that connection because they do have people like, for example, if there's a big event like the Negro Leagues Museum Big Hot Dog Festival, in order to do those big events, you have to create a safety plan that has to be cleared by the professional at KCPD. And so with that, there's obviously some suggestions to be made how to make it better And I can connect you to that person for sure. 
in an uh, ambiguous situation. Mm -hmm. We have somebody wandering around the parking lot, making uh, uh, shouting yes. uh, threats and so on that doesn't look like they're going to get physically violent, but we don't know. I want to. Exactly. Can I talk with you about yes. how to interface with the authorities in order to resolve that kind of situation. Absolutely. And the PAD program, the Policing Alternatives and Diversion Program that I talked about a bit earlier that the Alternatives to Incarceration Commission is uh, recommending is, is designed to meet exactly that need. Okay. But of course, until we get there, KCPD does have CIT officers that can respond and do wellness checks for individuals like that, that from my layperson opinion, is probably experiencing some form of mental distress, but I'm not trained or diagnosed to or, or, or trained and um, licensed to see those type of diagnoses. Um, and so those CIT officers, while we get to the PAD program, because it's going to take a while to build, they could be a huge help for that as well. I know we don't have our own jail at this point, mm -hmm. but re, um, focusing on the issue of why people are in jail and what people are in jail. Yes. My understanding is in some situations, you've got some people who have not been convicted but are in jail only because they do not have a fairly minimal amount of bail. So could you address that issue and talk about whether that situation exists here locally in Kansas City? You are spot on. You are spot on. Um, bail reform is something that's definitely important to the city of Kansas City. And the pretrial supervision and diversion program is a form of bail reform. I no longer, if and this is the program that I talked about where I'm charged with a crime, but I don't have bail to get out of jail, don't have housing, I don't have anywhere to go. So I have to sit in jail pending trial, even though I haven't been convicted of anything. Well, this pretrial diversion and supervision program, A, won't require you to pay anything to get out. You just have to sign an agreement that I will engage with these services and uh, comply with these conditions, whether it's electronic monitoring. I have to go to rediscover for substance misuse treatment twice a month, things of that nature. But there's no cost to the client. Um, and so bail reform is a huge issue in our community. I mean, it's a tale as old as time. Those with more resources, it's easier for them to navigate the criminal legal system. Those with less resources, it's a lot tougher. And so we see this pretrial diversion and supervision program as a way to navigate that and reduce those economic barriers for some of our residents. Uh, from our YouTube audience. Yes. Uh, says, what do you think would be the most effective action for your office to take to reduce the guns in the community? Well, he actually had two, two questions here. The other one is, I don't understand what you meant when you said too many DV cases are showing up in, in municipal court. Are you saying they should show up somewhere else or that there are just too many? I'm saying they should show up somewhere else. When there is bodily harm caused to an individual through the course of a domestic violence incident, it is my understanding and my belief that those cases should be going to the county level, to the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office, not the municipal prosecutor's office, um, because of the egregious nature of the offenses. And of course, at county court, you have stricter sentences available to you, whereas municipal court, the most you can do based off of a municipal offense is one year in jail. And then to your first question, what's the main thing that we could do to reduce the amount of guns in our community? I will never be the type to abdicate responsibility or to shift blame. 
But we have to take that answer, I mean, that question and that fight to Jefferson City. We as Kansas City are extremely handicapped in what we can do in the realm of gun control and reducing the amount of guns on our street. There is a state law that specifically says municipalities cannot act enact gun legislation that does not align with state gun legislation, which means... In Missouri, at the state level, pretty much as long as you're over the age of 18 and you have no criminal convictions, you can have a gun with very, very little restrictions. Well, that means that we here in Kansas City, we can't enact any legislation that is stricter than that. And then we can't be surprised that there is a, a huge gun problem in our community. I, I don't know why our state legislature doesn't understand the connection between having the third most relaxed gun laws in the country the third most relaxed gun laws in the country and Kansas City and St. Louis customarily appearing on the top 10 most dangerous cities list on the FBI list. I mean, it, it, it's it's obvious to me. <laughs> I see your facial expressions. I see that it's obvious to you. And so we really have to continue. And we've been fighting as a community. We will continue to fight. But that, unfortunately, is really a question for our state legislature. You've mentioned a couple of times interaction with federal law enforcement agencies, and I'm really interested in how often um, ICE is contacted, if they participate in your meetings. And as kind of a related question, what language access? Um, mm. When you're setting up these um, extra services, are you making sure to include other, especially Spanish? Yes, that is a great question. A great question. I'll start with your second one and then um, answer your first question. Yes, we do. We cannot talk about cultural competency in this work without talking about the language barriers that absolutely exist. And so because of that, obviously we have a long ways to go, but we are making inroads um, in that arena. Aim for Peace, the violence intervention program um, that um, in the health department at the city that I spoke about a couple of times today, they actually a year and a half ago won a federal grant to stand up one of their street outreach teams that helps with mediations in real time that is specifically Spanish speaking. And it is run out of Maddie Rhodes. And so uh, this is a real story that I'm about to tell you. There was a group of about six juveniles, all Spanish speaking, in our historic Northeast neighborhood, got into an argument. One of them pulled out a gun and they all started shooting at each other. Unfortunately, two of the young men died. Well, given the amount of people involved in the incident, the risk for retaliation, the risk that somebody was going to try to avenge the deaths of one of those young people was fairly high. Well, last year, we would have only leveraged traditional resources like 911 or traditional Aim for Peace. But with this program, we knew, oh, no, we can call the street outreach team at Maddie Rose and have them get on it. They were able to broker a written peace treaty that same night because of the lack of language barrier, because of the cultural understanding, because the people that they were trying to reach saw themselves in them. And so... Of course, but that's just our Spanish speaking community. And that's not all we have in Kansas City, which is what makes our community so great. Um, but we have a lot of Somalians in our community. We have a lot of people that speak a variety of different languages. And so we need more street teams that speak more languages. And so it's definitely something in our purview, in our sphere of awareness. And to your first question, ICE has not, ICE has not been engaged that much in this work for a variety of reasons. It's not because the request was not made. There's a lot of division that the general community is not aware of. 
And so that is just a very elusive way of saying no. I have not been engaged, but, but trust me, I understand why you asked that question, because especially as immigration issues are at the center of a lot of national conversations right now, they definitely should be and definitely should be to make sure that they are going about their work responsibilities in a humane way that aligns with the overall priorities of our community. All right. Thank you, Melissa. That's the name, Melissa Johnson. And uh, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the All Souls Forum. Join us next Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. for another episode of the All Souls Forum. And now, stay tuned for A Taste of Tejano at 8 p.m., followed by Noche Magica at 10 p.m., right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio.